As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I was fairly ignorant to most things, as you'd imagine a nine-year-old would be at that age. I was scared, I was upset, I had so many emotions running through my body. I don't know why I didn't yell, or why I didn't ask her to stop. I made a joke, oh, the seatbelt's keeping me safe. I just didn't realize how safe it was keeping me at the time. My boyfriend got frustrated and snapped, when are you going to get over it? I looked at myself like I was just a sex toy for, for men because that's how I was brought up. 
When I told people hoping for a kind, compassionate response, I got laughter and uh, boys will be boys. You, you do become extremely fearful and even worthless and small, almost like this is in a way what you deserve. This is the Still Not Asking For It podcast and I'm Rory Banlow. In early 2014, I found out that I was pregnant. A few months after that, my partner and I found out we were having a daughter. I know this isn't something you're supposed to say, but we were both elated to find out we were having a girl. However, one of the first things that was said to my partner was, well, time to buy a gun. This struck me as a strange sentiment to convey when congratulating a soon-to-be dad. But it soon registered that this echoes our society's attitudes about women and girls. Because the stark reality is, in Australia, women have a one in four chance of being sexually assaulted at some time in their life. And with only one in six assaults being reported to police, realistically that statistic is probably much higher. Whenever a societal problem strikes you, you always wish there was something you could do. Pregnancy gave me insomnia, which led to quite a lot of thinking time. I suffer from quite severe anxiety, so a lot of that time was spent thinking of the worst-case scenarios for everything to do with pregnancy, childbirth and, of course, parenting a daughter. It was during one of these uncomfortable, sleepless nights that my something struck me. I've been a photographer on and off for the last 10 years. I started by taking photos of bands and have slowly expanded to the point where I'm now an accredited professional photographer. I specialise in portraiture, so it was easy to decide that my something would be photography. I'd seen many photography projects for different causes, and I knew that in order for this project to be successful, it needed to be provocative, honest and raw. To start a conversation about sexual violence meant that this project could leave nothing at the door. It needed to be an example of what's wrong with our society's blasé attitude toward rape culture. I began scouring the internet for facts, statistics, ideas, anything that would lead to a spark of creativity, and eventually I found it. A photo of a topless girl with tape across her nipples and the words, still not asking for it, scrawled across her chest. At the time, I didn't know who she was and I couldn't find any information about her. But she's since reached out to me and I now know her name is Ashley and the photo was taken at Slutwalk in Chicago. Ashley became my muse, my aesthetic and my way to get the point across, no matter what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you are or who you're with, you are never ever asking for someone to violate your personal space, sexually assault you or be violent. I began compiling a list of slogans, statistics and words from survivors. I posted on Facebook and enlisted the help of several friends in my small town. Soon I had about 40 photos and the Still Not Asking For It project was born, or snaffy as I like to call it. All of these men and women were topless, with different words written on them. I used one soft light and shot in black and white. I slowly uploaded the photos to Facebook one by one, telling a part of each person's story. Then, in November of 2014... Then in November of 2014, I had my baby and my life halted. She was a bad sleeper, a chronic breastfeeder, she had hip dysplasia, I had postnatal depression and my partner and I both still had to work. Everyone says the first year is the toughest and boy did we feel it. Snaffy stopped because I had no spare time, university stopped because my brain didn't work and my life revolved around this tiny human's every need. 
In November of 2015, I decided to upload the whole project in one folder on my Facebook page. I did this the day before we flew to Perth for the first time with a baby and didn't realise what would come next. The post blew up. The comments flew in, the shares racked up. Soon it was at 1 million views and then 5 million views and then 10 million views. I couldn't keep up with what was happening. Soon I started to receive media requests, phone calls from editors of magazines and newspapers, requests for interview on German radio. The project had suddenly reached a huge audience and resonated with people from all over the world. Messages poured into my inbox, people sharing their stories, thanking me, giving me ideas, asking me to come to their town, schools, university to shoot. Concurrently, the trolling began. My photos were inundated with comments that proved the point of the project. Rape culture is alive and well. Every time a man commented on a participant's appearance, every time someone debated semantics over statistics, every time I had to block someone, they merely proved my point. Snappy was a conversation that needed to happen. In January, a producer from Sunrise contacted me. I was flown to Sydney, my first night away from my daughter, to be on their show early in the morning. It was as if the message was finally resonating. People were beginning to understand that we as a society have a problem with sexual violence. But still, the statistics are increasing. According to the New South Wales Bureau of Statistics, from 2012 to 2013, there was a 7.8% increase in indecent assault, active indecency and other sexual offences. Last year, Destroy the Joint reported 80 women were killed at the hands of men, and in 2016, 59 have been killed to date. That's 1.5 dead women every week. According to the Australian Institute of Criminology, the facts are quite simple. Sexual violence is overwhelmingly committed by men. People under the age of 19 are most at risk. In the male population, that is specifically under the age of 14. Perpetrators are mainly known to their victims. Most frequently assaults occur in domestic or residential situations and the majority of people affected by sexual assault do not seek assistance or report their assaults to the police. And around one quarter do not tell anyone at all about their assault. The most at-risk populations are Indigenous women, men and women with a mental impairment, sex workers, men in correctional facilities and members of the LGBTQIA community. It's been well established for the last 20 plus years that data collection surrounding sexual violence in Australia is lacking and published statistics most likely grossly underestimate the instances of sexual violence given that an estimated 85% or one in six assaults are not reported. This podcast is to tell people's stories, to hear more than statistics, to hear the sides of the stories that are so often silenced. This podcast is the story of the one in four in their own words. Firstly, I need to let you know that all names have been changed to protect the anonymity of those involved with the project. I must also warn you that some of this content may be triggering and contains intimate details about sexual and domestic violence. Should this podcast trigger any negative feelings, I urge you to contact your health professional or lifeline on 13 11 14. One of the most confronting aspects of this story has been the diversity of people's experiences. 
After receiving Zoe's story, I realised that even after being immersed in this world for two years, there are still topics in circles of survivors that are taboo, misunderstood and not part of our discourse surrounding sexual assault. For most of my life, my mother struggled with drugs as a way to deal with the traumas of her past. She was raped multiple times by her uncle when she was ten. My mother loved me, however... She was on drugs. She wasn't my mother. One night when I was seven years old, I heard her come home. I remember that I was sad and lonely because I'd been left home alone all day. I went into her room of my own accord. I chose to climb into her bed. Years later, I would learn that she was high on speed that night. But I didn't know that. I don't know why I didn't yell, or why I didn't ask her to stop. I don't know why I didn't do anything. I don't know why I didn't say anything. And after it happened, I fell asleep next to her. I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about anything. But I told my dad, and he took me to the police. I was medically examined, but she was never charged. And just two years later, I would be forced to live with her full-time. Zoe's story highlights one of the greatest faults of our legal system. The Australian Institute of Family Studies states that legal action is least likely to be successful when the perpetrator is known to the victim. However, sexual assault is most likely to be committed by a family member or close friend. Maternal assault of a daughter is extremely rare, and according to Making Daughters Safe Again, it is rarely spoken about, understood or taken seriously. Our society finds it difficult to reconcile the idea that a mother, who is traditionally seen in a nurturing role, could take advantage of her own child. Most children don't recognise that an assault has taken place until years later, as they can't rationalise what is and isn't appropriate with an adult, and especially when committed by a mother. Other survivors often assumed that maternal assault would have been more gentle or just a misunderstanding, as if gender invalidates sexual violence. Another gravely misunderstood area of sexual assault is that of male victims. The Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates that one in 23 men will be sexually assaulted sometime in their life. 90% of these assaults will occur before age 14, and 73% of these assaults are committed by other males. Zach tells a familiar tale of men who grew up in the 60s and 70s. Similar to Zoe, childhood trauma is not often realised until much later down the track. Uh, the beginning, I imagine, is I'm um, going back to about the age of around about nine years old. Um, up to that stage, I had a fairly garden variety childhood. There was uh, nothing much to speak of. I was doing all, all the sorts of things that a child would do at that age. We used to do a lot of mucking around down at the uh, reserve down near where we lived in Sydney. I used to get home with my two sisters. I was fairly ignorant to most things, as you'd imagine a nine-year-old would be at that age. One day we went down there and we were on this old bridge and I just decided to wander off and look at something and walked away from my two sisters and uh, this man was there. He just appeared out of nowhere. I had no idea who he was. And he tried to speak to me, tried to make himself familiar with me. Well, I, I guess as a nine-year-old, I took it all on board as just, he was an adult. I was a child, 
I guess I thought that he was a responsible adult. I guess I thought that he was doing something that was supposed to be responsible. I guess I just basically obeyed him, I suppose would be the, the best way to put it. And then he was trying to put his hands down the front of my pants. It was like a white-hot heat hitting my face, and I just sort of was absolutely stunned and shocked, and I couldn't think straight. I, I was just totally immobile. I, rem- I do remember he, he was having trouble because I had a belt on, and then he couldn't get his hand down the front of my pants. So he stopped what he was doing, and he undid my belt, and he continued on and put his hand down my pants. And This didn't last long. It only lasted for a, a minute or two. I must have been completely and totally shocked and stunned. I must have been in total panic stations because after there was uh, some sort of a pause, I started going back towards where my sisters were on the bridge. And when I got back there, the first thing they said to me was, you right? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I kind of figured that if I said something, I'd get him into trouble. And I don't know, there was some sort of panic there about what might happen if I did. And they looked at me and they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what. I never saw him again. I couldn't tell you who he was. The funny thing is that it's been rattling around in my head my entire life and I've never actually told anyone. Zach's story is the personification of the monster myth. The man lurking in the shadows, the abduction on the way home, the thing we've always been scared of. The story of stranger danger. But the reality is that this isn't the most common way an assault occurs. Normally, it's people we know, people we're close to, the people we least expect. I think I was about three or four years old when it first started. My stepbrother was nine years older than me. and My first memory was of him fondling me inside a cubby house we had made out of sheets in the lounge room. It's very patchy, the memories I have. I had pushed it all down when my stepbrother died in a car accident when I was 13 years old. From that day, I told myself it never happened. And the power of the mind is a scary thing because I actually blocked it out completely. At 13 years old, I started drinking and smoking pot, which helped me to escape the reality. I became very anorexic and focused a lot on just starving myself. I started partying really hard, going out in Sydney, clubbing all the time, off the rails. I looked at myself like I was just a sex toy for for men because that's how I was brought up. About a year, I had men just use and abuse me. I was raped. I was sexually abused on a train. I nearly got gambling raped. I had no care for myself. I'd put myself in dangerous situations and was really just trying to find someone to love me, but was finding all the wrong people and getting treated really badly. I was very, very low at this point, and that's when I met my second boyfriend. I wish I could say that Amanda's story ended here, but unfortunately, there is more, as is so common in survivors of child sexual assault. Quite often, survivors use drugs and alcohol to self-medicate and have trouble creating relationships with a healthy power dynamic, as is the story of Amanda. The first month of the relationship went pretty smoothly. He was funny and nice and made me feel good and and out of nowhere he started asking questions about who I'd been with and wanted to know all my my history and I'd openly told him about all the guys that I was with prior to him and 
he met one of one of the people that I talked about and instantly just backhanded me and I was in so much shock my friend was there and she tried to push him away and I climbed out the window and ran and scaled fences trying to get away from him I was so scared and I hid under a car for about three hours and fell asleep until my friend came out and got me and said he had gone home and that was the first thing I remember of a relationship with him as it went badly I was in so much shock and I always thought that if someone ever tried to hit me I would leave them straight away I couldn't understand why other women would stay with their partners and abuse them but here I was in the same situation, feeling so low and hating myself so much that I ended up staying. For the next year and a half, I endured constant beatings and emotional torment by this man. I tried to commit suicide two times just to get away from him and to not let him have the satisfaction of killing me. I was always on ecstasy when I was with him and pot, everything's very hazy. Every time he hit me, I would always try to run and he'd always follow me and grab me and get me back. And I'd always go back to save other people that were around. He kidnapped me from my family one time when I tried to get away from him and drove me six hours down, belting me all the way. He always threatened that he would do something to my family, so that's why I always, always kept going back to him. He isolated me from everybody. He locked me up all the time in cars or in houses. I was constantly locked up. He held knives to me. He broke my tailbone once. I don't remember much after that, after he kicked me with steel-cut mm -hmm. boots. But I remember waking up in the ambulance with a police officer there and I told him everything that had happened to me, all the beatings that had happened. And I was then put in hospital. I couldn't move, laying on my stomach. And there he was, come and got me forced me out of the hospital made me walk out of there and locked me up and made me do chores when we got home I was in so much pain and then the next day made me go down to the police station and try to get the AVO that they put on him revoked but they wouldn't do it because the police put it on not me but kept me locked up anyway well when all these beatings would occur over the year and a half which was nearly daily, I started having flashbacks to my childhood abuse. It was like a movie playing in my head. I remembered my stepbrother grooming me, telling me how pretty I was, how he couldn't wait till I grew boobs. I remember him putting bubblegum on his penis and making me suck it and having stuff in my mouth that would make me vomit and I couldn't understand what it was. I was only about five. I remembered me laying naked on a bed while he ran a feather all up and down my body. I remembered him getting the two next-door neighbour boys and telling them in a tent that they could do whatever they wanted to me. I remembered him getting my full blood brother involved and my other stepbrother involved and I was kind of just passed around like a toy. I remember him scaring me to not tell my parents. During my beatings, I once told my abusive boyfriend about the memories I started to have and he acted like he was all sorry for me and he felt like he understood me finally why I was the way I was. He then said that I had to tell my mum and if he, I didn't he would but I was so scared to tell my mum because she never got over the death of my stepbrother and I thought it would crush her but he threatened and I had to tell her. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Snaffy has led me to having many conversations with survivors of sexual violence. One of the most common reasons for people not disclosing their experiences is the idea of having to tell their parents. This theme is recurrent in many stories and is understandable. The idea that something out of your control could affect your relationship with your parents is quite confronting. And if the relationship isn't great to start out with, you may not know what their reaction will be. This theme will come up again in other people's stories, but it's an important point to stress that if parents have open dialogue with their children about healthy sexual relationships, it may make it easier for them to disclose if, God forbid, something were to happen. And we need to be realistic that while the statistic remains at one in four, it's a reality that this is a conversation we may need to have. So now we pick up the story of Trish, who once again reinforces the common narrative of assault by those close to us, by those we don't expect. When I was 16, my mom used to kick me out a lot, and that's how I met this guy. I was staying at my friend's house. I was sleeping on her couch, and he, after a few days, ended up sleeping on one of her other couches. After the two years, I had in between been going back to my mom's house or sleeping on this friend's couch... So on May 31st of 2010, I got a text from him telling me he needed a place to sleep. So while we were talking on the phone, I kept telling him that nothing was going to happen between us, that it was my mom's house and I didn't feel comfortable with it and I didn't want to disrespect her in that way. 
And so when I picked him up and he got in the car, I realized how drunk and messed up on whatever drugs he took he was. I could smell the alcohol on him and he was slurring his words. He instantly started kissing my neck and trying to put his hands up my shirt and down my pants. I remember like pushing his hands away and we started to drive. And while we were driving, he was still trying to get his hands down my pants and up my shirt. I made a joke. Oh, the seatbelt's keeping me safe. I just didn't realize how safe it was keeping me at the time. His behaviour continued when they pulled up at Trish's mother's house. There was a scuffle. Trish thought that by arriving safely at her home, that would be the end. The scariest part about this story is that at this point, Trish thought her friendship with the perpetrator would prevent the harassment from progressing any further. You never think it's going to be you, and you never suspect it's going to be them. I started walking back to the house, and I thought everything was going to be okay, but then I was stuck up against the car. I didn't quite understand at first what was going on. I think it took a minute to really kick in. But I remember how fast my heart was beating and how scared I was. And begging him not to do this, telling him that I was scared. It was like he couldn't hear me. He was struggling with me because I was trying to push him off of me. He elbowed me across the face and my lip was bleeding. And the taste of the blood will be something that sticks with me forever. I tried again to push him off and he grabbed the back of my hair and was holding my head back. He bit my shoulder so hard I could feel how the skin was broken and that I was bleeding from where he bit me. He ripped my bra. He started fingering me from outside my pants. I could feel my pants up inside of me and how bad it hurt. That was where I just stopped fighting. I was scared because I didn't know how much worse it was going to be because this was a side of him I really never saw. And I looked in his eyes and it was like nothing was there. They were black. It was like he had no soul. He just wasn't there. I didn't know what he was capable of. It wasn't the same person I knew for two years. Trish had known her abuser for two years, but our next story shows how quickly these situations can escalate. My experience with rape uh, and sexual assault, uh, mine occurred during a relationship and it was only three months. So I suppose when I first met him, you know, he he seemed like he was a a happy, caring person and went and was there for his family, sort of someone that you wouldn't overly suspect. I myself was pretty vulnerable, I suppose, and, and lonely and I think I was just wanting someone to be with and I think I was just happy at the fact that someone wanted to be with me. But then sort of early on, there was signs that, you know, he, he was quite controlling. I couldn't even stay at the, my own house um, that I was living in, started controlling if I could see my friends or not. It was it was little sort of little things. But how it actually happened was during my sleep So that's when he would always try and have sex with me. So it was always when I was asleep. Being in that relationship, I felt like I couldn't get out as much as I wanted to leave. And as terrified as I was, 
I mean, people like that do make you feel very isolated and trapped. And and I also think a point that I, I do want to stress is that it's not as easy as just leaving. People have told me that, well, why didn't you just leave? You could have done this, you could have done that. And, and it's really not as easy as that. You know, this person controlled everything I did where I was. You, you do become extremely fearful and and even worthless and small, almost like that this is in a way what you deserve. I mean, this this person told me he was he thought he was capable of of killing and, and murder. So I suppose in a way I became fearful that he could kill me if I tried to leave. The threat of death is very real for Australian women. As I mentioned earlier, roughly 1.5 women die every week at the hands of a male. Now we meet Hannah. She has an unusual story in that although the perpetrator was someone known to her, it wasn't a circumstance you'd expect. It highlights how the gap in sex education in schools can lead to situations that aren't easily identifiable as problematic until later in life. I got with my first long-term boyfriend when I was in year 11. I thought I was very much in love and was very friendly with his family. He had a 16-year-old brother who I would joke around with and be friendly to when I would visit his house. Overall, it was a very friendly atmosphere between his family and I. One night at his house, it was about 1am and we were both asleep in his bed. I woke up with my eyes still hazy and his brother was in the room looking around. I asked what he wanted and he said he was looking for Panadol, which was weird in the first place, and then he left. I went back to sleep and was woken up a second time by something much more disturbing. I felt something touch my shin, which was out of the covers as it was a hot night. I remember I was completely naked apart from my underwear, so I was very uneasy when I felt this. I opened my eyes to see the brother at the end of the bed shining his phone screen over my legs and touching my legs with one hand, his other hand thrashing around violently in his boxes. I remember being petrified. I couldn't move or breathe and he didn't notice I had my eyes open. I wanted to crawl into a hole and cry for ages. I eventually started jabbing my boyfriend in the side to wake him up and his brother, with a shock, stopped what he was doing and started looking around. My boyfriend asked what he was doing and he responded with looking for Panadol and left the room. When I told my boyfriend what I'd seen, he laughed and said, classic little boy and let's never speak of this again. How embarrassing. I told him I didn't think this was okay and that he should tell his parents and he said he would, but he never did. We broke up shortly after. In a comparable set of circumstances, I introduced Brooke. The first part of her story, in a similar vein to Hannah, may have been prevented if sexual education in high school prepared teenage boys for sexual encounters. The first part of Brooke's story is one of the most common stories I have heard. A teenage party, peer pressure, coercion, backlash and the inevitable victim blaming that is so prevalent in cases where teenagers are involved. When I was 14, I was sexually assaulted. I was at a party at a friend's new boyfriend's acreage. There was underage drinking, and though I'd never really been particularly interested, I certainly felt the pressure to fit in. I think I'd had one vodka cruiser. He was a friend of a friend who asked repeatedly if I wanted to take a walk with him. I refused until I felt uncomfortable, and I just accepted to make him stop asking. Had it not been for someone else stumbling upon where he had me pinned, things could have been much worse. I told my friends immediately, after all, I had done nothing wrong. He was thrown out of the party, which did make me feel supported. 
but I was not prepared for the backlash that would follow. Some people didn't believe me. Apparently it was out of character for him. Apparently I'd led him on. I started to question my own behaviour. I threw away the boob tube and the jeans that I'd been wearing. I let myself fade into the background and I avoided social gatherings with boys involved. Looking back, I think I was in denial about what happened. This is the first time that I've talked about this particular incident. Not even my sister, who's my best friend in the whole world, knows. It seems like an odd thing to do when I now know that I did nothing wrong. It wasn't until years later that I came to that conclusion, though. Again, I wish I could say that Brooke's story ends here, but she had the unfortunate experience of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. When I was 23, I was raped. I'd been walking home from my bar job, which took 15 minutes, when he tackled me from behind. I was dragged behind a bin, robbed and raped while he held a pair of scissors to my face. He left me naked and bound by my wrists. I called the police as soon as I got to my room and they told me that I couldn't shower, I couldn't use the toilet. They took photos of my body and they asked for my statement over and over. They showed me thousands of comfort images and asked me to identify his features. I stared at those grainy images until they all seemed to blur together. And it wasn't until I was taken to the station for further questioning that I really started to panic. This time it was real. This time my statement was on paper. There was photographs. I had a case number. The female detective who took over from there told me that if he was caught and I was prepared to go to trial, that the defence would question my choices. The facts were I was walking home at 3am from my job at a bar in mini shorts and fishnet stockings. I hadn't slept for 26 hours by the time the hospital released me, so it wasn't really until the next day that it sunk in. This time I was angry. This time I decided not to be silent. Luckily, I had an amazing support group of friends and family, which really made all the difference this time. I sent out a message on social media, letting everyone know what had happened. I was not prepared for how many of my friends came to me and said that they had been raped too. Not all those people were women, either. It was then that I felt like I carried this responsibility to them, that I had to be brave and show them the, the power of speaking out. I was transparent about what I'd gone through in the hopes that I could change the dialogue surrounding the victims of sexual violence. I was determined not to let it change me. I went back to my job a week later. Um, my boyfriend and I were intimate within days. I still wore shorts. Everyone marvelled at me about how I was an inspiration, so brave and so strong. So eventually... When I did fall apart, I felt ashamed. It doesn't matter how often you tell someone not to feel ashamed. It's something that most survivors struggle with. The question of what if. The fact that even though you've done the right thing, contacted the police, gone through the processes, you most likely won't ever see justice for what has happened to you. According to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, when alcohol is involved, the chance of a conviction is greatly decreased. Susan Estrich talks about the myth of the lying woman and how it was created to discredit female victims of sexual assault. But the fact is, in Australia, only 2% of reported sexual assaults are found to be false. And in a country where only one in six assaults are reported, that figure is almost meaningless. Our final story is Alicia. Again, a familiar tale. Alcohol, a nightclub and a small town.
On the 30th of August, me and some girlfriends were planning to go out to the club. We got ready and had some pre-drinks. And then we decided we'd head out. We all went in there and we're having a few drinks and having a dance on the dance floor. I was approached by another man. He was dancing along and I was dancing along with him. It was really casual. I thought nothing of it. I just thought, you know, we're just dancing. And then we consented to kiss, which was fine. Then kept dancing a little bit. And then it got a bit strange because he started to pull me off the dance floor. I kept saying I want to stay and dance. So he ended up pulling me towards the toilets. At the time, I was quite scared and just really unsure of what was going to happen and where we were heading to. And he pulled me into the male toilets and locked the door and leant up against it. And at this time, I was thinking, wow, what the hell is going on? I was quite scattered in my thoughts as well of like fear as well as get me out of here. I was fairly intoxicated and he did know that. He started to pull my pants down. He started fingering me. I was repetitively saying, I want to get out, I need air. The more I tried to speak, he put his hand over my mouth and got tighter. So it became like a mumble. I just was still in my body. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get out. I was stuck as the door was locked and he was leaning against it, there was no way out. I couldn't scream for help because my mouth was covered. So I believe that my body just went into shock and I ended up passing out in the toilets. The next thing I knew, there was a security guard tapping me on the face. There was no emotion from me whatsoever. There was no words coming out of my mouth. It was just like a blank canvas. The security guard took me out of the toilet and into another room where she sat with me and tried to understand what had happened. I was very much in shock, so there was no tears or anything. But I do remember her saying to me, did he touch you? And all I could do was nod. The conclusion to Alicia's story may surprise you, but that is what you'll hear in the next episode. The conclusions to all of the stories, the after the way in which survivors have developed coping mechanisms and how these assaults have affected them for varying periods of time after the trauma. If this podcast has raised any issues, please contact your health provider or Lifeline on 13 11 14. For more information on the Still Not Asking For It project, please see our website at stillnotaskingforit.org. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.